Back to the Powell Butte Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at Powell Butte Christian Church in beautiful Central Oregon. And it's uh, wonderful to be with you um, as we go through a study in the Gospel of Luke. We are on week eight, and we're looking at God's restoration plan here in uh, Luke chapter five, starting in verse 12. Now, we all probably understand what restoration projects are all about, whether you are restoring a, a classic car or you're flipping a house and you're restoring it back to uh, its uh, condition where you can live in it and actually uh, find value in it. Uh, in our area, uh, over in Sisters, uh, Oregon, just uh, several miles uh, to our west, there is a restoration project going on that began back in 2016. Um, there's a creek called the Weishas Creek. It used to be called Squaw Creek. And uh, the government has been spending millions of dollars on the restoration of Weishas Creek. Um, started back, like I said, in 2016. And uh, they've completed one section of it. Now they're starting on a new section. It's called the Rimrock Ranch section. And, and basically what's going on is we are spending money um, because so many years ago, long, long time ago, we decided that we wanted to make this area more conducive uh, for our recreation activities. So we sanitized the area. We made it pretty. We made it flow better so that we could have our recreational activities. But the problem was, is that's not how it was supposed to go. That's not what its purpose was. And so we are now seeing uh, the wildlife and, and the fish life around that actually suffer because we changed what it was supposed to be like. And now we decided that in order for there to be more health, we wanted to restore it back to the way God created it, where now fish can hide and, and grow and spawn and, and uh, the vegetation around can actually thrive. And, um, and there's a beauty that uh, reflects the beauty around it in central Oregon. Well, in the same way, today we're going to look at uh, a few passages here from Luke 5 that represent a spiritual restoration project that uh, Jesus came to accomplish when he came to the earth. And like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, um, these these events in Jesus' ministry, the, the, the times that he heals people, uh, and, and there's going to be a lot of times in Luke's gospel where Jesus heals somebody, those healings are not just about his compassion feeling bad for those who are lame, who are sick. Uh, there's a higher motivation that Jesus has. And it's um, it's basically a, a, an eternal representation of God's higher redemptive plan for mankind, not just to bring us physical life, but to bring us eternal life. In, in other words, this is his eternal restoration project. Now, let's quickly look at the first story about a man who was suffering from a deadly disease. Chapter 5, starting in verse 12, we, we read, While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his feet to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. Offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. And yet the news about Jesus spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him 
and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Here's an account of a man who was literally untouchable in that culture, in their society. The suffering, the physical suffering that was caused by leprosy, which, uh, by the way, that word leprosy wasn't just what we would consider leprosy today, but it actually included a wide variety of contagious skin diseases that people dealt with back in those days. But that physical suffering is only part of the problem. Yes, it's a problem. Uh, your nerve cells would be damaged. Um, pretty soon you would not be able to feel uh, the tips of your fingers and the tips of your toes and, and the extremities. And so because of that, uh, you might hurt yourself and not know you hurt yourself. Uh, it was impossible to feel pain. And so extremities would be neglected. They would get infected. They would be burned, perhaps, if you uh, threw something into the fire, dropped something into the fire and reached out to grab it. You would not know because you could not feel pain how badly you had damaged your cells. And eventually that damage would make those extremities weak and then rot off and fall from disease or decay. So that was one part of the problem, that physical suffering. But the other part of the problem was this stigma that surrounded this disease because it was so contagious. Nobody wanted you around. And so you were isolated. You, were, you had to be forced into seclusion in the Old Testament. We read in Leviticus chapter 13 that if you had leprosy, it was pretty humiliating because you had to be thoroughly examined by a priest. And I mean thoroughly examined. Every nook and cranny of your body had to be exposed. And if you tested positive, you were then publicly shunned. You had to wear a certain kind of clothing, shabby clothing, so that you would stand out in a crowd. You were ordered to find a place that was far away from society where you would either live all by yourself or you would be surrounded by other lepers who also had been shunned, who also had no hope, who were very contagious themselves. And, and that just kind of condemned you to this kind of life that there was very little possibility for you to ever be healed. And, and to, to make matters worse... Because of the isolation from family and friends and from your spouse, from your children, it was required of you that if anybody came near you, even accidentally, you had to prevent them. You had to prevent them. You had to prevent them. And, and it, you were a part of the shunning because you were required to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that people would know to not come near you. You were literally untouchable. Now, do you know what being untouchable can do to somebody's psyche, to their spirit? Back in college, I had a girlfriend who had been adopted as a baby in Texas uh, in the mid-60s. Jamie is her name, and, and Jamie tell, told me the story that uh, while she was waiting to be adopted, she was part of a cruel experiment. I mean, People wanted to know how important touch was to people. And so they had these babies that were orphaned, these infants, and they decided that uh, some of them, they would just take care of their basic needs. They would change them when they were messy. Uh, they would feed them when they were hungry. They would dress them, and that, that was about it. The other babies uh, in this experiment would be the ones that would be held and coddled and cooed and sung to. They would experience human touch 
whereas the other uh, children were not. And what they found was that the, the kiddos that were not touched, who, who were neglected in that area of their life, they became skinny, gaunt, their eyes bulged out as if they were reaching out for something, for somebody to touch them. And uh, not only would they demonstrate the, those characteristics as infants, but e even in college, Jamie still had some of those characteristics about her physical person because of this, this experiment. Uh, she was not touched with love as a baby, and her body bore the results of, of that horrible experiment. We need touch, folks. We need touch. I, I, I reach out to people to hug them, and you, you uh, would be surprised how many people will hug back really tight as if they have not had touch for a long, long time. That This man here in, in this passage, he had been a leper for quite some time. Luke, who, by the way, was a doctor, so he would know these kinds of things. He actually describes him as being covered with leprosy. This is not just a, a couple of patches on his body. He's covered with leprosy. He has dealt with this stigma for years and years and years. And yet when Jesus came along, Jesus represented hope. This man obviously had heard of what Jesus had been able to do for other people who were suffering. He had heard of the miraculous healings. And so out of hope, out of desperation, emboldened by this desperation, he cries out, Lord, if you are willing, listen to his faith, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What a risk that was. Because now he's shouting out, instead of unclean, unclean, get away from me, he's almost beckoning Jesus to come. What if Jesus wasn't willing? What, what if he has built up all of this hope and Jesus just shuns him like everybody else, seeing him as somebody to, to pity and to, to be afraid of? What I want you to see, first of all, from this passage, the most powerful thing, really, that I, I can find is, is Jesus' words in response. He says, I am willing. This was not a, well, I guess if I have to, I guess if you're going to twist my arm, I, I, I suppose I, I can do this for you. Now, now, the attitude that we hear in these words, I am willing, is amazing. I am willing. I am willing to heal you. It showed the value that this man still has in the eyes of God, this untouchable, this outcast, this diseased throwaway of society. So that's pretty powerful that Jesus said, yes, I am willing. But here's the best part. Jesus could have just said, be clean. And we know Jesus has spoken and people have been cured. He could have just said, be clean, and the man would have been cured. And that would have been amazing as Jesus was willing to give this man uh, a, a, his health back, give him a new beginning. Ah, but what's so powerful to me that along with those amazing words, I am willing, we see Jesus in action because he's not just willing to heal. He's willing to do something most people would not have been willing to do because it would have been too much of a risk for their own health. Jesus was willing to touch the untouchable. He didn't have to. He chose to. 
He was willing to go beyond just a physical cure. And, and he, was, he wanted to demonstrate even greater value in this man when society and even scripture deemed him untouchable. Jesus knew better. He was willing to touch the untouchable. Now Luke follows this story with one very similar, and we pick it up in verse 17. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men carrying a paralytic on a mat um, came carrying a sorry. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, "Friend." Your sins are forgiven. Now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins he then said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. And immediately the man stood up in front of them. He took what he had been lying on and he went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Cool story, right? But one of the most dangerous parts of the story actually lurks underneath the surface of something that was amazing miraculous. See, we could focus on the faith that these four friends who brought their paralytic friend to Jesus for healing, we, we could focus on their faith. We could talk about how weird it would have been to be in that home and listening to Jesus teach and then feel, you know, maybe a, a bit of plaster from the ceiling above break off and fall on our heads. And, and then now we're distracted as we look up and we see a little crack of daylight that gets bigger and bigger as more and more of the roof is being taken apart bit by bit. And then and then to, to see these four uh, uh, faces looking down and then and then to have the sun blocked out by a, a pallet, a mat that was being lowered down, filling that space that had just been opened up in the roof. And, and now this mat comes down and there's a paralyzed man lying on it. it it's an amazing story. There's a lot of angles that we can look at. But for me, the most important, and what is lurking under the surface that is really dangerous for the religious leaders, that is, this is brought to light in Jesus' first words. As soon as he sees the man, he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, what's up with that? I would imagine that the four guys watching from the roof might have been thinking, uh, uh, thank you, but that's not why we brought him. We were kind of hoping for a healing. Interesting. The leper was kind of hoping for a healing, but he got so much more. He got a touch. And here, the paralytic was kind of hoping for a healing. And yes, he received that healing, but again, he got so much more. You see, there was a religious fallacy taught back in that day, and I would argue that there are still places today that still teach this fallacy. 
And that fallacy said that if you were suffering, it was due to some sin in your life. In other words, if you were suffering, it was your fault because of your sin. Uh, this actually stretched all the way back to the very first uh, thing ever written in, in the Bible, the Old Testament story of Job, where Job was suffering and his friends came to comfort him. Uh, Job had literally lost everything. And the friends came to comfort him, and they actually, by uh, coming to, to comfort him, they began to talk about his situation, and they came at him with this same fallacy. Uh, yeah, we, we've come to comfort you, Job, but obviously this happened because there's some kind of sin in your life. God must be punishing you, Job. And Job said, no, I'm actually a very righteous man. I don't know why this punishment has come upon me. They said, it's because you sinned. That's exactly what's going on here. Somebody who's been paralyzed, somebody who's suffering must be suffering because of sin. That was the pervading thought in religious circles in Jesus' day. And so the religious leaders would have pr pronounced this man unforgivable. Why? Why unforgivable? Well, in the leper's case, let's go back to the leper. Somebody with leprosy, there was at least a slight chance of recovery. You know, that, that's why there was actually a prescription of what to do if you thought you were cured, that, that God maybe did come down and take away your leprosy. You were to go back to the priest and show them uh, according to the law of Moses, and they would declare you clean. So that was leprosy. But folks, paralysis is different. Paralysis is different from leprosy. There would be, in their day, there would be no coming back from being paralyzed. That was a permanent problem. And if it was a permanent problem, then in their minds, that was then a permanent punishment, which meant in their mind, this man was unforgivable. The leper was untouchable. This man was unforgivable. And the only way that you would be able to convince these religious leaders that this man could have the hope of forgiveness would be for God to miraculously create muscle tissue and strength and tone where there had been years and years of disuse that had produced atrophy. The only way that this man could be forgiven was for God to do the impossible by bringing dead, damaged nerves back to life. Folks, there are, there's no way even today to bring back dead nerves to life in, in many, many cases. And so back then, it was definitely not possible. So if it was not possible for God to do that, then there was no way, no way that he would be forgiven unless God did the unimaginable. So when Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven, no wonder the, the Pharisees took offense at that. Because this was going against God's declaration of guilt and pronouncement of punishment in their minds for this man's sin. Only God could heal this man. And only God can forgive this man. So Jesus said, oh, well, just so you know that I do have the authority to do this, to forgive, let me defy your doctrine. And he heals the man. And remember, in their minds, only God could forgive. And only God could heal a paralyzed man. So Jesus goes, okay, fine. There you go. Apparently, God's got a different idea of what is forgivable and what is not. Lastly, we now look at a story that we actually looked at last week, um, the calling of Levi. 
also known as Matthew, and the subsequent dinner that Levi held in his home in Jesus' honor. We, we pick up the story in verse 27 of chapter 5. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, and again, we know Levi as Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, here we have a whole other class of outcasts. With lepers, there was a rare chance that they might be cleansed and brought back into society. With paralytics, it really did seem humanly impossible for them to be healed, and thereby there's an ongoing stigma of sinfulness about them. But when you were paralyzed, it, it, that was just a one-time deal. A one-time deal and you're paralyzed. But with these tax collectors, this is an ongoing sin, an ongoing choice to sin. We're, we're talking about degenerates who made this conscious choice to turn their backs on their fellow Jews and work for the enemy. This is irredeemable. These sinners were irredeemable. People who didn't just lose their right standing with God, they intentionally threw it away. You know, I, I used to work in youth ministry, and I, I, I worked with both high school students and middle school students. And some people think that I, I'm warped for saying this, but I actually would prefer working with middle schoolers than I would with high schoolers. And you'd think, why? I mean, middle schoolers are just so, they're so squirrely. Uh, they, they're, they're, they, they just, they, they're out of control. They're hyper. They, they say things that are inappropriate at the inappropriate times. And man, how can you say that those guys are better? And this is what I tell people. I say, you, you know, so much stuff is going on in, in the mind and the body of a middle schooler as, as puberty hits. They don't, they can't control what they're doing in many cases. You can say, why are you doing this? Why are you treating me like this? Why are you acting like this? And they'll say, I don't know. And it's true. They don't know. It's just what their body is doing. So I can I can kind of overlook that. I can, I can deal with that. But with high schoolers, when they do it, they know what they're doing. They're intentional about being squirrely, about disobeying, about being disruptive, about being rude, okay? And that just floors me. See, with religious leaders, these guys that were eating with Jesus, they made their choice. And that to them was un irredeemable, I'll say, irredeemable. Because when you make that kind of choice, they thought there is no mercy available. They are sick, sick individuals. Why would you hang out with them? But there he is, hanging out with them. This man who claims to be the Messiah who claims to be sent by God, a, a man who is holy. And if he is so holy, why is, why is he associating with these sick, sick individuals, the sum of society, the irredeemable? Why is he doing that? Well, because as Jesus said so well, because it's the sick who need help. It's the sick who should not be abandoned. 
It's the sick who need to have the medicine, who need to have the treatment. It's the sick that we need to go to and show them that they are redeemable. Now, what do we make of these three stories? Stories of the untouchable, the unforgivable, the irredeemable. These are the ones to whom Jesus comes to show us God's restoration project. These are the ones that Jesus proclaims are actually the touchable, the forgivable, the redeemable. That's his message. That's his message that because of the work of the Messiah, People are touchable. They are forgivable. They are redeemable. So now, let's bring it home as I kind of wrap things up today. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt untouchable? Have you been in the position of the leper? How often have we been chewed up and spit out by our culture because we lack what they think is um, are, are the things that we celebrate? Uh, we, we get chewed up and spit out because of our lack of beauty or skill or prestige. It happens all the time, folks, and it's devastating. I bet you you have felt untouchable at one point. Young girls being told that they have no value unless they look a certain way or dress a certain way or act a certain way towards boys and, and men. Or young boys who are being told that they're wrong for, for being boys, for having a wild heart for adventure. Young boys who are told that they're the problem, so they're discarded as punks or thugs who need to be neutered. Jesus came to the leper so that we can understand this truth. Folks, you are touchable. You are not a mistake. You matter. You who are made in the image of an almighty God, you are not worthless. You are not worthless. You have value. You are touchable. Oh, but not only that, not only are you touchable, but you need to know this. Our enemy, the devil, loves to beat us down with guilt. He'll use our guilt. He'll use our sinful nature, and he'll make us feel guilty so much so that we pull ourselves away from God. He lies. He tells us that we're unforgivable, that God is out to get us. Satan is called the accuser of the brothers. We see Satan having access to the throne of God in Scripture, accusing people like some underhanded, conniving, prosecuting attorney, a slimeball. But something amazing happened at the cross. When Jesus died, Satan was kicked out. He no longer had the authority to accuse anybody before God. See, when Jesus died, his blood served as the payment for our sins. Therefore, as Paul would tell us in Romans 8, Verse 1, there is now is no condemnation then for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation means that we are forgivable. In Jesus, there is no condemnation, even if your heart makes you feel like there is no hope, that you do stand condemned for your sins. See, Satan is still the accuser, but he can't get to God, so he accuses you to you. It's our hearts that condemn us, where God says that he does not condemn us. Our hearts, which the Bible tells us are deceitful above all things, they lie to us, telling us that we are unforgivable. But like Jesus' encounter with this paralytic man, a man seemingly destined to never experience a right relationship with God, at least according to the religious leaders of his day, Jesus comes to you to let you know that Satan is wrong. 
that those religious leaders are wrong, that your heart is wrong because you are forgivable. And there's nothing that you can do, no shame you can bear that would keep you from the power of Jesus's death and resurrection. You must come to embrace the conclusion of Romans chapter 8 that says that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor debt nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are touchable. You are forgivable. And lastly, for those of you who have lived there in the unforgivable land far too long, it's as if you have resigned yourself to being so bad that you are irredeemable. Now, if you recall from last week, when Simon Peter realized the holiness of Jesus, and he compared that to the darkness of his sinful life and his bad choices, he succumbed to this devastating thought that there is no hope for him now. So what does he say? He says, depart from me. Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. I would, if I had been there, I would have said, Peter, why? Why are you pushing away Jesus? Why are you telling him to depart from you? The one person that could redeem all of your past to buy you back, to redeem all of your sin, to redeem all of those times that you willingly walked away. Now, Peter will go on to say some horrible things, even as a disciple to do some horrible things. At the darkest point of Jesus' life, Peter is going to be the one who will deny even knowing him just to save his own skin. Pretty despicable. And yet, and yet, Jesus redeems him. After Jesus rose from the dead, he is intentional to go back to Peter and reinstate him, giving him responsibility in the kingdom, redeeming this apparent failure of a friend and a disciple. How could Jesus accept Peter again? Because Peter was redeemable. Why is Jesus eating with the tax collectors? Because Levi and the tax collectors were redeemable. These tax collectors who had betrayed their Jewish heritage and brotherhood, they were redeemable. And guess what? So are you. You are redeemable. Satan would love for us to all tell God, go away from me, depart from me. I'm unclean. There's no hope. But God is a God who redeems, who buys us back, who then gives us hope for our life. Isaiah 43, this is what the Lord says, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. I want you all to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Because of the ministry of Jesus, as recorded here in the Gospel of Luke, you must know without a doubt, you are touchable. You are forgivable. You are redeemable. Because of God's restoration project, you are loved. That's why Luke uses these three stories, because they epitomize the, the, the extreme of what it means to be untouchable, unforgivable, irredeemable. And yet it doesn't matter, even in the extreme. God's love conquers all of that. You are touchable. You are forgivable. You are redeemable. You are loved. Now, one last thing. Because you're loved, there is one more thing that I must encourage you to remember. It comes from 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. 
And if you could memorize this, that would be wonderful. First John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We love. We are characterized by this wonderful, divine, agape, selfless love. Why? Because he first loved us. You know, I wonder sometimes how the Pharisees got to the point of being so condemning, so opposed to the mercy and the grace of God. How they could deny lepers and paralytics and tax collectors access to God's mercy and grace. Well, it's, it was probably because they had forgotten that they had also fallen short of the glory of God. That they also were sinners in need of forgiveness. That they were also damaged goods in need of restoration. Folks, it's too easy to fall into that trap. But because it's so clear from this morning's passage that you were loved, that you are touchable, that you are forgivable, that you are redeemable, there is now a calling on every one of our lives if we are disciples. Let me put it this way. You are touchable. Therefore, God calls you to bring that touch to other people who, are, who feel untouchable. You are forgivable. Therefore, God commands us to be people who are willing to forgive other people. And you are redeemable. Therefore, God has commissioned you to take the message of the gospel, the good news, to every nation, every race, every people. That good news is that if God is for you, no one can be against you. There will always be hope. This world is filled with people who need to know that God loves them that they are touchable, that they are forgivable, that they are redeemable, but they will never know that until God's people have come to understand that the ones who have come to understand his amazing grace and his inexplicable mercy and his unfailing love, when we decide that we will now live as his ambassadors, that we will serve as his hands and feet, sharing that good news to other people who can then hear about his amazing grace and his mercy and his love. If we can say we are going to be his vessels to show this world God's love, then we are fulfilling the great commission that he's given to us. This week is different. It's special. This is the week where people who might have told you no, 51 other weeks of the year, if you invited them to church, they might just say yes this week. Because somewhere deep down inside of their psyche, they know that Easter is a, a special event, and maybe they used to go a long, long, long time ago. If they say no to you 51 other times of the, of the year, if you invite them to church, this week is the week that they might just say yes. But I suspect that they're only going to say yes if you've been able to show them that they are touchable, they are forgivable, and they are redeemable. In other words, you have lived out the grace, the mercy, the peace, the love of God. Psalm 68, 6 says, and I love this, he says, God sets the lonely in families. You know, many of our life groups have been studying the importance of reaching out in grace to those who are not yet part of God's family, who, who have not understood that they are touchable and forgivable and redeemable. God longs for those of us who know that, who already know what it's like to be touched and, and forgiven and redeemed. God longs for those of us who are here to care about those who are not here yet. People need to know that there's a place for them to belong, a place where they are touchable, forgivable, redeemable, loved. Have you been able to live in such a way that those in your life who do not yet belong 
that they have witnessed something inside of you. Maybe they can't put their finger on it, but they, they know something is different because they, they, they've, they've seen that you don't look down on them as a Christian, that, that you're a believer who's patient with their shortcomings and sinful habits. That they, they see a person who is, who's actually living out grace and like, you know what it's like to be forgiven. And so you're willing to pass that grace and forgiveness along. So let me ask you, are you willing first to allow God to come in and do a restoration project in you? But if you have already allowed him to do that, are you willing to be a part of God's restoration project in those around you? I'd encourage you to reach out to somebody, to reach out, tell people they're touchable and forgivable and redeemable. All right, well, that's uh, the message that I'm going to be bringing this Sunday. I, I hope that uh, you are inspired to live in such a way that God says, you know what, if people see my love through you, then they may come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's my prayer, that we will be people who will continue to reach out by the way that we live and the way that we um, give people hope, no matter how they're living, to share with them that they are not untouchable, that they are not unforgivable, and they are not irredeemable. All right. I'd like to thank all those who make this uh, podcast possible for Lisa Welly, executive producer who gets these up on the podcast sites, uh, for Steve Pittman, who uh, makes all of our electronic and technical things possible, uh, for my daughter Donovan, who uh, gave me this microphone so that I can do these podcasts from my office, and uh, for you for tuning in. I want to thank you. May you have a blessed Easter, and may God continue to shine his light upon you.